What's up, my friend? Welcome back to the Out of the Cave podcast with Lisa Schlossberg. This is me, Lisa Schlossberg, and I'm really excited because today we have a very special and important guest who has joined us before and is back to promo our retreat that will be happening September 30th to October 2nd. Give it up, please, for my friend, mentor, colleague, and many other things, Nicole Sachs. Nicole Sachs is here to talk about not just her work around chronic pain and the mind-body connection, which you may already be somewhat familiar. If you're not, highly recommend listening to episode three on the Out of the Cave podcast, um, where Nicole made her first appearance here, but really to talk more about how our work overlaps aligns and how we can apply a lot of the fundamental principles we know from Nicole's work to our relationship with food, eating, our bodies, and body image in general. Again, this is what we're really going to be working with in person um, together at the retreat in San Diego this fall. So please enjoy this conversation between the two of us. Please see the show notes below if you're interested in joining us for the retreat and be in touch if you have any questions, if you'd like to hear more, and if you'd like to share how this work has been resonating with you. Thank you so much for being here. As always, I love you, I appreciate you, and I hope you get a lot out of this really awesome and very important conversation. All right, we're here again. Welcome back, Nicole Sachs. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Me too. So the the original intention behind doing another episode with Nicole Sachs, the woman myth legend, um, is we're going to be hosting a retreat, or I'm going to be hosting a retreat at the end of September. And you, my friend, are going to be one of the presenters. So part of the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is because we have this incredible event coming up. And I want to talk a little bit more with you about how your work around chronic pain, also known as TMS in your community, um, and my work around emotional eating and body image and all of the things overlap. Um, and what we're really going to help bring to people in real life in next month. So that is the initial kind of, you know, why we're having this conversation and what I'm excited about. Um, but before we get into all of that, for those of you who are not, as, you know, for some of the people who are listening who are not as familiar with you, can you start with just an introduction of who you are, Nicole Sachs? I can. Okay. So um, my name is Nicole Sachs. I am a psychotherapist by training. I am podcaster, author, um, speaker, teacher, presenter kind of person. Um, so basically uh, my chronic pain journey has informed my practice and the message that I bring out into the world. Essentially, and the main message that I think I bring is you have so much more power than you realize, and maybe that you've been taught 
to affect your physical and emotional health. And, you know, I think that we are um, in a take a pill society in a hand over our power society. It's not our fault. That is how we are raised um, in the Western medical model. And although I absolutely don't deny the Western medical model and I am, I use it in all the ways that it feels right to me. I also think that it is an, can be an incredibly disempowering model about seeing doctors as gods and about seeing medication as the solution and, um, and really taking away all our agency. So my work with people is to hand them back their power to help them understand that they, um, that there are tools that they perhaps haven't yet heard about that could affect their ability to heal their bodies and their minds and their hearts and their Whole, the whole system, the whole system can work in equilibrium in a way that I don't think we, we quite have been taught. So my main goal, whether it comes to anxiety or pain or different symptoms and syndromes that might not originally be labeled as pain, like irritable bowel disease or like skin disorders um, or like pelvic disorders, like some people wouldn't call that chronic pain the way they might with back pain or migraines, it's all under the same umbrella of what Lisa mentioned, we call TMS, which is Dr. Sarno's original term. It means tension myositis syndrome, but really all you need to know about TMS, it's an umbrella under which all chronic conditions live. And that could be anxiety, depression, that could be chronic, that could be chronic fatigue, that could be any body aches, pains, or syndromes, because it's all coming from the same place. If we are living with a mind and we are living with a body and a brain and a nervous system, there are, there is a dance between those that cause our systems to react in a certain way. And some people call pain negative or call pain a problem that needs to be fixed. And I call pain strong stimulation and information. And so we are getting information from our brain and our nervous system that helps us make decisions as to how we can regulate ourselves. And so essentially all that to say, my work is a toolkit to help you regulate yourself so you can come into equilibrium and feel great, feel your best self. Wow. Beautifully said. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So this is incredible because as you know, you and I do things, we barely plan. We barely plan before we hit record. And I think it's amazing that we do that because it always aligns somehow. And <laughs> for me, what I'm thinking about is the fact that this retreat at the end of September is called the out of the cave and into your power retreat, because nice. that's really what this, you know, two and a half day event is really about is saying you are a mind, body, soul system. We are a system of energy. And so how do we be in a place where we can actually maintain a sense of balance and peace and safety and power? It's about coming back into our power. So thank you for sharing that from that perspective. Very beautiful. So can you, from this perspective, now you've introduced yourself, you're you know, a licensed clinical therapist. Um, can you say a little bit more about how being this mind, body, soul system in a physical body, um, you know, we can get a lot of information about how that, um, how some of us suffer from chronic pain because of, you know, kind of maintaining the system. But can you talk a little bit about how we can understand what I always put in quotes, which is eating disorders um, from a similar you know, perspective. It's not necessarily the physical pain in the body the same way, but you and I understand that that's you know, this, the same mechanism. So can you just share a little bit about what that means in terms of you know, your work and my work? <laughs> 
Yes, absolutely. So when I hear that question, what it brings to mind is something that I imagine you have quoted me on a hundred thousand times, which is um, life is a choice between what hurts and what hurts worse. And so what I mean when I say that is that we have sort of um, a misunderstanding about life as human beings. We think life is a choice between what hurts and what's awesome. And wouldn't that be freaking nice? I actually would really prefer that. Unfortunately, it's not the case. Everything in life has a side effect. And I often say that when I describe this concept to people, it is as low stakes as whether or not to eat that donut and it is at as high stakes as whether or not to have that child. You know, everything in life that is a decision, we have to weigh what hurts and what hurts worse. And even though that sounds negative on its face, it's actually a huge relief to see life like that because you stop expecting something to be perfect. You, ex- you stop expecting to not feel conflict and you allow yourself to be in the space of what is. So if we're talking about whether or not to eat the donut, There is the instant gratification and the deliciousness of eating it. And then there's whatever you may or may not, based on your sensibility, feel about yourself or maybe how your stomach will feel or how your body will feel after eating it. So what hurts and what hurts worse? You know, you just look at it like that. You don't have to be so, um, so polarized. You can just say, I see there's a gray area. I'm going to eat this and I'm going to love it, but you know what? It might give me some stomach discomfort, or you know what? It might make me feel a little bit of shame because I said, I wasn't going to eat like that, whatever, you know, it's all, I like to, to wear it like a loose garment to try to be very gentle with ourselves about the fact that this is the dichotomy of life. So having said that eating disorders to me are very similar to any sort of chronic condition, which is the brain and the nervous system see our repressed emotional world and the things that we cannot control as a greater predator than the physical manifestations that we give our attention to. So that physical manifestation could be an eating disorder, or it could be back pain, or it could be chronic anxiety, or it could be any number of things because we have a misconstrued notion that that which we can control is safer. So if I'm in the midst of an eating disorder and I'm measuring my food and I'm withholding myself from, from eating, or if I'm overeating and then hating myself for it, or if I'm, you know, actually looking pretty healthy on the outside, but every time I look in the mirror, I don't see what's really being reflected back like body dysmorphia. That kind of thing, although completely unpleasant to the person experiencing it, actually is deemed a safer space by your brain and your nervous system than dealing with your parents' divorce, the bullying at school, um, you know, the fact that you can't seem to find your way in the world and you don't see the meaning or the purpose, like all the things that feel super hard for us to control or super impossible are actually read by our nervous system as a threat to our survival, which is fucking crazy. Because like, if you really think about it, it feels like, my God, but it's not a threat to my survival to just not quite know my purpose in life. But, you know, unfortunately, we don't get to decide what our nervous system deems as a threat to our survival because the nervous system is hell bent on saving our lives. And thank God it is, because if it weren't, we wouldn't have that momentary light speed reaction time when it comes to actually jumping out of the way of a moving car or pulling your hand off something that's going to burn the skin off of your fingers. Like 
we get that the nervous system does that for us. But then sadly, when it's, when the stakes are different and when we can consciously know that something isn't going to threaten our survival, the nervous system doesn't always know the difference and our perception is our reality. And there is a perception often that things that we can't control are just too dangerous to look at, but what doesn't feel dangerous to look at how much you eat, how much you exercise, what you think of yourself, how much you loathe yourself. Those are things actually, sadly, that feel very safe. And so I see eating disorders as really very similar to all of the chronic conditions that I work with in my practice, because it's just another way to put our attention into something that is forever a problem, but never solved and something that we can chronically live in that feels safe enough and, um, and, and Lisa and I are both here to turn that around for people because I like to call that safe in the unsafest way because you are safe, I guess, but you're not happy and you're not settled and you're not at peace and you're not free. You're not free. And we seek freedom for you, for whomever. Mm. Thank you. It's so yeah. good. It's so good. And it's, I mean, abundantly true. It's like, I hear you say, and all I can do is like feverishly nod my head because that's, that's exactly, <laughs> I watch that's, that. it's, 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 that's all, it, that's all, all of it is. So I think what's, there's so many things that come to me when I hear you say this, even though I've heard you say it a thousand million times. Um, but what I think is important for anyone who's listening to this is understanding that safe in the unsafest way is how we find like a momentary glimpse of comfort yeah. But it doesn't actually feel safe on a deep level because our mind and our body are still not connected. Right. It's like we still we like perpetuate this like ongoing seeking a dopamine hit, which could come from getting on the scale or it could come from looking at the scale and never getting on it. Like whatever way we find to ultimately, like you said, have a sense of control. But the thing that is so tricky about it is that we never actually had control to begin with. Right. So what I like to also kind of ask you about and hear you talk about is, especially when it comes to eating disorders, can you say a little bit more, or, you know, we're putting eating disorders in quotes the same way that it's like irritable bowel syndrome is like a, you know, conglomerative symptom. So, um, but can you say a little bit more about the relationship between if you're struggling with disordered eating and you're finding that a lot of your time and attention is keeping your life kind of small, safe in the unsafest way, right? All you can think about is the calories you ate that day or what right. you don't want to eat that day or whatever it is, right? How do we start to move into a place of more safety and power from living in that kind of box? Does that make sense? Yes. Um, you know, that kind of question to me, the word consciousness comes up, you know, how consciously are we living? And I think that without mindful pause and a decision to become more conscious, we walk around unconscious. So many of us do. And so when I think about, you know, how can we stop that, that fake safety and, and, and invite ourselves more into our, the depth of our human experience, it involves pausing and becoming mindful that we don't want to continue just reacting to life. You know, the point of therapy or of any retreat or of any um, work, self-help work in any way, in my opinion, is to create an observational self, to create a pause between the stimulus of life and then our natural reactions that feel 
um, really so reflexive. It's like, we don't have time to be different. And so anytime we want to move into a greater presence in our lives, it's important to become more conscious. Um, and, and, and it's not always easy and it's not always within our control, but, but if you're, if you're willing to listen to this podcast, that's what I often say in my, on my podcast or like, whenever I'm speaking, like if you're here, you're halfway done. You're willing. You, you, you know that you desire to be conscious if you're even listening to this. So if you're, if you are here, then you're, then I invite you to go deeper and to, and to get slower. I am a fast person by nature. I walk fast. I talk fast. I eat fast. Like I constantly want to move to the next thing, which is so annoying because it's the opposite of what I really want, which is a depth of presence and experience. And so I'm the perfect vehicle to constantly be forcing myself to slow down, to pause, to be here. And when we do that, we're open to the possibility of seeing, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. This actually isn't safe. What I'm doing might feel safe to the nervous system. Who's super happy to be fast and reflexive. That's the nervous system's job. My job as a sentient human being is to slow down and to be mindful, which begs my favorite quote from Carl, Carl Jung, which I think I've been saying constantly lately, which is until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. And, you know, it's so easy to walk around unconscious and then to bemoan whatever, you know, state our lives are in. And, and it's so much, quite, quite frankly, easier to do that than to pause and be in that real inherent discomfort of the lack of control, of the finitude that is the reality of our lives. You know, my podcast last week was on the call of mortality and it's really about understanding that we will choose to do the less mindful thing because the more mindful thing reminds us that everything is finite. And even when you love deeply, it's going to end. And even when you, you know, you tap into something that makes you feel completely alive and aligned and, and excited then that makes you realize how much you want to be here and you don't want anything to end. And it's just so beautiful and poignant, actually, that as human beings, we will choose the less painful option, which is, you know, it's so funny when I talk about chronic conditions, which all these conditions are chronic, by the way, until we throw up the stop sign, chronic by its very nature is never ending. Why do we choose it? Why do we choose it unconsciously as human beings? Because we don't want to go anywhere. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants this to be over. And so it's like, it's all just very beautiful if you pause and look at it, because it's the reason that we stay stuck. Because if it, in cyclical patterns, by their very nature, are so circular and keep us in the same place. And although we don't really want that, we want freedom and we want forward trajectory and we want growth we end up putting ourselves in these holding patterns. And so it's all about consciousness. It's about pressing the pause and becoming more aware. Amazing. Thank you for that. Well, what's really cool again about hearing all this is that's what it means for me to come out of the cave. Like many of us, right? Like that's the whole thing is many of us are living with this like autopilot of like, what I should do is just focus on my weight and body and shape and size and then control and control, 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 control. Um, and we make our life very, you know, small because it feels safe 
but in the unsafest way, because we're not actually moving anywhere. We're not actually going through anything. We're not actually present enough to, as you're saying, really embody the depth of the human experience. And that's ultimately what we're here to do. So for me, that's what it means to literally come out of the cave is to wake up and say, hold on, this is not how I want to spend my time here. I have a whole life here to live. And my yeah. body is the vehicle and the vessel through which I can live it and with which I can live it, in which I can live it. And so I don't want to spend my whole life controlling, controlling, controlling with what really is fake safety, as you refer to it. What I want to do is be here. Yes. What I want to do is really be here. I want to be actually in my body, not thinking about what my body looks like. I want to actually embody my body, which was something that dropped in for me huge when I was working through IBS with all of your work, was actually come back inside instead of contracting and controlling and restricting and fearing. It's to say, wow, sometimes these feelings of being a human are like really overwhelming. <sighs> what if I just like let it be that? Yes. I imagine that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay. So that's ultimately, I mean, for me, very often, that is what, what hurts, what hurts worse comes down to is that you're either going to be in the, what hurts sometimes worse. That is the controlling, 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 contracting, or you're going to be in the, what hurts <laughs> that is, wow. Not having control over everything makes me feel a, B, C, X, Y, and Z, whatever right. that is. But those are the only options. And something I was just saying on my Instagram story the other day is like, I lose option three every day, right? Because I'm aware of it. That is that third option of everything being controllable, everything being comfortable, everything being okay, everything, everything, everything. I lose option three every day. So it's yeah. not just around, you know, back pain and fibromyalgia and acne and eating disorders and body image. It's just like living a human life and making it a lifestyle where every, you know, every so often it's like, oh, there I am trying to control everything again. Oh, what if I just be here? What if I just surrender to what is? Yes. Yes. And it's hard and it's hard. And I want to throw like a ton of compassion out there to people because even though Lisa and I are sitting here and we sound so studied about this, we still struggle with it every day. Every fucking day. It's just, it's just, you forget, you know, this is the human condition. Oftentimes people, I've been criticized over the years for choosing the cure for chronic pain as my, uh, my brand, whatever you want to call it. And the reason I, I defend it is I say, but there is a cure for chronic pain because chronic pain is an epidemic of fear. What there isn't a cure for is human pain because human pain is part of the fucking deal. And that is where Lisa and I, and I, I, I'm proud of us for this, you know, trying to be the voice out there, but also being completely willing to say, Hey, hands up. I'm still struggling with this too, because it's, this is the way it is. And if you can accept that, you can say, all right, it's, you know, I, I often say we have to start with everything is ruined. You know, we're, we are not perfect beings. We aren't going to do this perfectly every day. We're not going to feel great about ourselves every day, but just because you're doing this work and you're making these strides and you wake up one day and you look in the mirror and you say, I'm gross, I'm fat, I'm unacceptable. That doesn't mean you've, you're, you've failed. It's the human condition. We are scared to embody that which we are because we've got our parents' voices in our heads and our bullies and our childhood voices that we hold ourselves. I mean, it's complex. 
to be here like this. So just wanting to kind of call that out because I want people to all give themselves the self-compassion that they need to just keep walking through this. Yes. Thank you for that. It's always so true. And yes, no, we are, we are no exception at all. Can you say a little bit though, because this is for me, this is so important. And I was thinking a lot about it this morning. What does it mean that this is an epidemic of fear, not an epidemic of pain? Just say a little bit more about that. Okay. Yeah. So when, when people are in pain, it becomes all about the pain. You can see nothing beyond. So we'll just, I'll just, um, I'll use IBS as an example, because I know that's something that Lisa has been working through or has worked through. If you have debilitating pain, or if you are running to the bathroom every five to 10 minutes, or if you can't go to the bathroom and it's been days and days and you feel bloated and worried and uncomfortable and you can't eat, or, or if you're having reactions to foods, literally think about how much energy that takes up, like almost all of it. You know, you might be able to do other things, but you're constantly thinking about, well, I shouldn't be too far from a bathroom, or maybe I should get medication in order to make it move. Or maybe I, you know, need, or I'm in so much pain. I can't really focus on what's in front of me. When we are in quote pain, it steals our attention so completely. And so that is the state of human pain, but chronic pain really, even though on its surface, it looks like this, this symptom that is stealing our attention is really the fear over the fact that we cannot make it go away. The meaning we give it based on, you know, well, what if I can't go to that meeting next week? What if I can't attend that trip for my child? What if I can't show up and be intimate with my partner? You know, that meaning and the fear associated with the symptoms become the primary thing that we are worried about. It, you might think it's, oh, it's the pain in my stomach, but I promise you, when you get into a chronic situation, it becomes, how is this going to steal from me? How is this going to ruin my life? And, and, and until you realize that that's really the primary thing going on, you can make it about the pain. You can say, no, 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 no. My problem is that my stomach hurts. I get that your stomach hurts, but I will promise you that if you were certain that you ate a bad oyster and that your stomach pain was going to be gone or your vomiting or your diarrhea was going to be gone in three hours... This would be far less of a problem than if you were making meaning and fear about the rest of your life. And so what I think people need to understand is that that's what promotes something to become chronic. It's not our understanding. The nervous system is not terrified that you're going to be sick forever when you eat something bad and you know it's moving through you. The nervous system is terrified when you have no control and no understanding of the genesis of something. And then you go into sustained fight or flight, it starts to inform all the systems of your body. And that's when something becomes chronic. And so it's really important to understand that the thing we need to manage is not necessarily our pain, but our fear and the meaning that we're giving it. And that's what all the tools that I put out there and that I'll be teaching at Lisa's retreat have to do with. It's like, how can we pause more than pause, press the fucking stop button, like take a really big minute and say, how do I want to recalibrate right now? So I am not living in constant fear and meaning that I can know that there are tools to do the work I need to do to not be constantly in fight or flight. And then you can calm down enough to do the work. And that's when the symptoms start to fall away. Amazing. Really? Because what, what goes on in my head so much when I'm hearing you say this, especially right now, as we're recording this from my podcast is now 
invitation to everyone who's listening to this to consider what this means as it relates to your relationship with food and eating in your body and your body image, right? Because if you look in the mirror and you autopilot, make meaning of what you see, it should be this, it should be that, it's too big, it's too small, it's too this, it's too that. Now, right, you're, you're automatically sucked in, you're in the fear. You are making meaning of something that is your physical body, that is your home. This is the vessel that you live in. And now we've made all this meaning of it, which is not your fault. Because of course, of course you have, of course you look in the mirror and you make meaning of your body. You were raised to do that. You were conditioned yeah. and habituated to doing that, right? It's not your fault. That's totally, you know, we can all understand anyone who's listening to this, that is, it, it never came from you. It never came from me. It never came from us, right? It came, it was passed down to us. But the thing that I think is so important and want to put on everyone's radar is exactly this point that is anything chronic. So if you've been suffering with this, you know, overeating, undereating, mindless eating, stress eating, whatever it's going to be, or you look in the mirror and you have a struggle with your body image, the number one thing to do, quote unquote, is exactly what you just said. That is pause, stop, recalibrate. You are safe in this moment right now. Mm -hmm. And from that place of connection, presence, intention, mindfulness, then it becomes a question of, okay, who is the person that I want to be? How do I want to show up here in my human life? And if I don't want to spend all of my time and energy and effort right in this fear cycle, I'll just control, control, control it becomes who is the person that I want to be? And this is something we were just teaching at Omega. That is for me, it is who is the person that I want to be? What would that look like? And how do I give my sense, myself a sense of that right now as I am who I am? Because very often I'm, again, back to the point, I'm not immune to any of this. When I have days where I'm struggling with my eating habits or I have days where I'm struggling with my body image, I know now that it's not about changing that kind of narrative it's about pulling myself out of the fear. It's about yeah. saying, this is present and this is happening. How do I want to show up? Which comes back to ultimately your point about having power and that your conscious input is everything. Because if you perpetuate that your body size, weight, shape means something about you, the human, right? As Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff, who's like the queen of self-compassion has taught us, that if something threatens your identity, another thing we talked about at Omega, if something feels as though it's threatening your identity, this is who I am. This says something about who I am, how good, lovable, worthy I am. It automatically feels like a predator and a threat to your survival brain. Yes. Yes. So all that makes sense. It makes so much yes, sense to me. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So having said all of that, um, when you find yourself on behalf of anyone who's listening to this, who is in that cycle of kind of letting it steal all the attention, right? This is something that you really have talked a lot about in your work with, with chronic pain. If someone is in like debilitating pain, right? And what we're saying is, okay, kind of relax into it, take a breath, come back into your body, actually be here and don't let it steal your attention completely. Because that's something that is really similar around chronic pain as well as body image and weight, right? We can put all of our kind of eggs in that basket energetically. What can you share with us about 
not letting it steal your attention completely and actually starting to gradually take that power back. Well, the first thing I want to say about that is if it's stealing your attention completely, we have to honor the fact that it's saving your life. And and anything that steals your attention completely is coming from a place of true, like terror on the space Mm -hmm. of your nervous system. You know, I have a friend who she and I have spent tons of time discussing our for lack of a better word, eating disorders, because I think the word eating disorder can hold, can bring up too many specific things that I I don't identify as having an eating disorder, but I certainly have lived in my lifetime of disordered eating, of body dysmorphia, of issues around being raised in the eighties with everyone being airbrushed and magazines and, and never feeling like I was what a girl should look like, or I was enough, which, you know, so sadly, I mean, I'm sure 99% of girls at my age felt that way because of the society within which we were being raised. But when we were talking about our issues around body image and eating, and she was saying how her upbringing lent itself to such unsafety that the literally the only thing she could do was to be small. And if she was small, she felt safe. And now she's a grown woman. Her life is completely safe. She has a beautiful life, a healthy marriage, uh, you know, a great friends. She's, she's in such a great place. <clears throat> she still can't feel safe unless she's small to a certain extent that she's deemed, you know, acceptable. And like that terror that overcomes her when she puts on weight is so real. It's, I I guess, so so to, to answer your question, when you say, how do you break out of that? Like really, really the depth of the cycle. I think the first thing to do is to honor why you were there in the first place to go back to that inner child, to go back to that space where like, literally you felt like you could not survive if you weren't this, that, or the other thing. And now as an adult saying, okay, you know, like hand to heart, slow it down. Thank you. The first thing I ever say to my pain or my struggle or my, any sort of symptom that I feel like is trying to save me is thank you. I see you. I see what you're trying to do for me because it is so huge how I have needed you. And like honoring that first, I think can probably give you enough space to pause just enough to say, but you're old. You're not really here right now. You're I, when I go into you, I'm eight and like, so, okay. Like right. Even there, I have a teeny bit of a pause. Am I eight anymore? wait, actually I'm not. And I know this might sound almost like so condescending, like to ask someone to do this to themselves, but like, I'm promising you, if you feel in the grips of something that huge, you are still eight. You know, we, childhood is timeless until we go back and, and hear and see those little people that felt completely unacknowledged and unsafe and alone. And so part of my work is always doing that inner child work and bringing us back into that space of safety but like, really, it's it's just about super slowing it down, acknowledging that it was necessary, thanking it for what it's done for us. And then hopefully in that exercise, finding some clarity that it's actually not needed anymore. And then within that, we can start to change. Yes. <clears throat> I get emotional when I hear you say that because, mm-hmm. um, A, because this is something that doesn't necessarily go away. And I wanna talk a little bit about that, but because it is so abundantly true in my experience personally and professionally, that the first thing is exactly what you just said, that is seeing and hearing it for what it is, which is it's trying to save your life. Mm 
Yeah. And always, always like the way that I refer to it sometimes when I'm teaching is I call it step, step zero. Like before there's even step one, step zero is understanding that any of these eating habits or the body image thing, um, it is the attempt at a solution. It's not the actual problem. That is step zero, because if we don't have that already, we can't take step one. We can't take step two into actually quote unquote doing the work. It is so important to understand anyone who's listening to this. If it feels like you wake up and there's that charge around your body and food, understand it's not about your body and food. It's really, it's a thread to follow because it's trying to help you feel safe. And that is the number one, number one, number one thing. So, so that's that. But the other reason I say, I want to talk about the fact that it doesn't necessarily go away and you don't have to co-sign this belief, but, but something that I think is important to share is that this is why I don't necessarily align completely with um, like mainstream eating disorder treatment that really views those eating behaviors as a problem mm-hmm. to solve, right? It's like, we have to get out of this. We have to heal it. We have to be done with it. We have to fix it. But especially around food and eating in our body is what, what I'm saying. And what I think I'm hearing you say too, is what we have to first do is, is look at it and say, I don't, I don't want to get rid of you. I don't want to, I don't want to be done with this relationship. I want to peek under the hood And I want to hear you and I want to see you and I want to understand what's actually going on here so that I, as a grown adult that I am today, can actually give you the safety that you're seeking. It's not about getting out of it or getting rid of it. Make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's like the whole thing we're always talking about in terms of, um, you know, when we, when we're always quoting Elizabeth Gilbert with how to talk to fear, you know, if our goal is to banish fear, well, we're in a, in a, tie we're we're in an ultimate tie break that will never happen because we want to be done with fear and fear will keep rushing back and you know this what you resist persists everything will come barreling back into your life so instead of trying to be done with fear and to banish it we say hey you're allowed to come strap yourself into the back but you're not picking the route and you're not picking the snacks and you're not driving the car and like and that's so that's the same thing it's just like not allowing ourselves to negate the things that have kept us alive, but also not wanting them to rule us and to drag us around by the neck anymore. Yes. Quite a balance, Mm -hmm. quite a balance. Okay. So having said all that, there's like a million other questions that I could ask you, but what I am curious to hear you talk a little bit more about is your own personal experience. I think a lot of people know your chronic pain story, know about, you know, your spondylolisthesis. Now I can say that. Nice work, nice work. Thank you, thank you. Um, And so can you say a little bit more, you know, you briefly mentioned what it was like for you growing up as a female in the 80s. And can you just say a little bit more about kind of like what, what has it been like for you to live in the body that you're in, in regards to food, eating, body image, how that manifests for you, Nicole Sachs? Yes. Um, so I, um, find it hilarious that I was probably in my thirties. I might even venture to say my early forties when I really figured out that what you look like has anything to do with genetics. Okay. Like, like literally I'm telling the truth about this. I was so not convinced, but I was so in the grips of my failure. And I put that in quotes since this is only audio to be taller, thinner, 
lankier, like more flexible even. And so it wasn't just about thinness. It was about not being satisfied with my body's, like the life quality that I wanted. I wanted to be able to float through life as a young child because my life was incredibly challenging and I did not feel like I had an ease that I wanted in terms of moving through life. And so the way I found myself to be wanting, and then that is a very gentle term to be like a fucking total failure is that I couldn't make my body look and behave and move through the world that I like the way I wanted. And so for so long, I was habituated to find myself to be a failure in that space. It literally was in full adulthood when I finally woke up one day and said, Oh, wait a second. I'm shaped like my parents and their parents before me. And it's not that I'm shaped badly, but I don't look like her or her or her. And it's not just because I can't bring myself to not eat that thing. It's because genetically I don't have that length of legs or that ability to fold myself into a pretzel the way I wanted to. I wanted something that I felt was attached to this thin small, flowy kind of girl that I have never been. And it doesn't mean I'm not awesome. I'm just strong. My girlfriend calls me a beast. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a strong, but mighty beast. I'm, I'm a little beast and I am. And, and it's funny because somebody at Omega said, have you always moved around like you're 15? Cause I jump on and off the stage and I wear clothes. Like I'm a teenager and I have. And there's something so incredible. I love myself for that. But when I was little, I found myself to be clunky and thick and not what I thought would be the ideal person to flow in and out of the many situations that my parents kind of set me up to be in. We moved all the time. I was always the new kid. I always felt like I had to look around and find where I fit in. And when you, when you're flowy, and when you're flexible, well, you can just fit in anywhere, you know, in a child's mind. Oh, I just have to make myself into this shape and I can just fit into the space between this girl and this girl. I don't have to be a strong presence. But here's the problem, as you might be gaining understanding of as you listen to me on this podcast. I am a strong presence. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to be. It felt incredibly unsafe to be a strong presence because when you're a strong presence and you're constantly being introduced into new situations, you might not be liked. You might not be welcomed. And in my little kid brain, if I was not liked and welcomed, I was going to die. I have, an, I have no siblings. I'm an only child. I was always new. And my absolute survival depended upon having friends and a soft place to land and to be able to walk into that school building and say, here I am and people wanting to see me. And so how might that be achieved? Well, first of all, be as small as possible because the less big I am, the more big my personality might be able to be. And I don't think I could have controlled that personality. My personality is big. My energy is big and I love that about myself, but it's also been incredibly scary. And so when I look back at my life, I understand that I felt the need to be small to counteract two things, genetics that I did not prefer and newness where I always had to fit myself into a, to a, a structure that I felt like I needed to, to survive. And so the way that manifested as I got older is I just became and I say this with absolute um, kindness and um, 
I just, I feel like when I use this word, sometimes it can sound insulting, but I just got a boring regular eating disorder. <laughs> like, like I, I didn't, I, I, all these like special, beautiful nuances of the things that I think contributed to it by the time I was like 12 or 14, just looked like a typical girl. I just, I did, I would starve myself or I would binge. I was, I hated puking. So I was never a puker, but I would just allow myself to be in that very typical pattern. And the reason I apologize for calling it boring is because I use that term in my own work. When people have like back pain or fibro or migraines, I use it to calm them down. I use it to normalize. I said, oh, oh honey, don't worry about it. I know you feel like your migraines are unique in all the world. They're just boring TMS, you know, like, let's just normalize it. I'm full of boring TMS too, you know? So when I say I just had a normal boring eating disorder, that's all it looked like. It didn't look like the depth of my personhood. It looked like I starved myself or it looked like I overate and hated myself and used that space as where I put my energy. Or it looked like I would get myself to a place where everyone said, oh my God, you look amazing. And I lived in constant terror that I was going to lose it, that I could not sustain this level of like depriving myself at exercise. So I did that for a really, really, really long time. And because I never got too thin to be worried about or throwing up, no one noticed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one mm-hmm. ever noticed. Yeah. And so when, when nobody notices a problem in you, you can live for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. And I will say at age 50, it is far less of a companion as it has been in my life. I feel incredibly good about being able to say like, I am, I am almost a person that, that can, I could say I'm recovered, but the only reason I know I, I will never call myself recovered as like an end, wipe my hands of it and stick it in a drawer is first of all, I know that that's just not true for the human condition. We're always a work in progress. And also I still want to honor it. I want to honor it for what it has given me, how it did keep me safe, how it gave me something to think about and to obsess on when really what I could have obsessed on is my parents feel really out of control. My life feels really terrifying and it's going to swallow me whole. And that's how actually it really felt. But I could sit and say, let me count the calories I ate today. And honestly, it was a loving part of my life that my brain and my nervous system was giving me, giving me just a little freaking help a little support there. And so I honor it for what it is. And then when I'm feeling unsafe or uncertain, and I go to, you really shouldn't have eaten that. I can put my hand to my heart and say, I see what's happening. You're going into that space where you're trying to find some protection. Maybe just be a little kinder to yourself right now. Maybe we can do that. Maybe we don't have to think about how unsafe and uncertain everything feels. Maybe we can divert ourselves from that and still not hate ourselves for having eaten that. And so that's where I am. And I know I spoke about this at Omega, so I'll just piggyback this onto this moment of the conversation that the reason I've embraced exercise in my life, which is a super, super healthy part of my life, I don't over-exercise and I don't hate myself if I don't exercise, but I, I, I have a very healthy exercise practice at this point which is consistent and which is good for me is because I exercise for my emotional and my mental health. And I don't fixate on my physical body. Meaning if I go running, I don't come back and in after, you know, before the shower, stare at my body and say, 
well, did it fix that? But it didn't fix that because that's what I used to do. And it used to keep me from exercising because I felt like, what's the point? I'm not perfect. I don't do that to myself anymore. And that's Lisa's influence on my life. Because one day when I told her how I was struggling to have an exercise practice, she goes, how about this? Just try to exercise for your emotional health. Just let's do an experiment. Just exercise to feel good that day that you did it. Stop looking at your body. And by doing that day after day and creating a practice, I've really come to an incredibly healthy um, relationship to exercise that I value so much in my life because in the end, quite frankly, if you do exercise consistently, you will see changes in your physical body, which is like, yay, that's a bonus and also feel emotionally well. So, so I'm doing good, doing well, but also, um, I'm really happy to be honest with, you know, where I'm at and how I got here. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. So there's a couple things that come up for me while I listen to all of it that I think is really important that um, one is just to, I mean, this is probably very clear to us, but anyone who's listening to this, the way that you talk about wanting to feel flexible, mm-hmm. right? And, and the way that we attribute that because we're spiritual beings having a physical experience with an animal brain, we attribute that to, oh, if I could just like touch my toes, right? Then my whole life would feel like I'm flexible, yes. which is not at all <laughs> how it actually <laughs> works. Right. But we, but we do that thing that is like, I want to feel safe in any social situation. So what I should do is probably make my body really small. Like we on autopilot, we think physically because we exist in the physical dimension, but you can hear probably the way that it's not at all about being able to touch your toes or be a certain size. It's about saying my life requires the, you know, these, these attributes from me right now that I feel like I don't have, or I'm not well equipped with. And what I can do because I'm a human is just get really fixated on, you know, yes. the calories in calories out or whatever it is. So I think that's just a really important point for anyone who's listening to this and can, can start to um, identify how that may or may not be true for them. Because I think, the other thing that is so important to me is you remind me of um, Glennon Doyle, who I know we both love, Glennon Doyle's um, TED Talk from years ago. This is part of my group curriculum, but her lessons from the mental hospital TED Talk. Mm -hmm. And so highly recommend for anyone who's listening to this. But the reason I say you remind me of that is because, you know, I had a weight issue, my whole quote unquote weight issue, my whole childhood. So that's the the lens through which I saw the world from day one. Um, But I think it's interesting how, even if you don't have something like a weight issue, um, at the end of the day, what you were saying is, if you were really telling the truth about who you are, it would feel uncomfortable yeah. and it would feel scary. And the reason I bring up Glennon Doyle's TED Talk is because something she identifies there is it doesn't need to necessarily be like one traumatic event that happened in your childhood or like a thing that happened. It's more just like, the essence of who I am feels like it wouldn't necessarily fit in here. And, and we don't, I say that because we don't necessarily have to like dig so deep for like the nugget of like what happened to me as a child, right? Especially when it comes to food and body image stuff. I think very often it's exactly what you're saying. That is, it just didn't feel okay to be who I am. Yes. Period. It just didn't feel safe to have this personality. It just didn't feel safe to be this person in the room, whatever it is. And so I say that because again, I think sometimes in our work, there's that tendency because we like to do, 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 do. We like to put on the detective hat 
and say, what is it that happened to me? What is the moment that this disordered eating began? And it's like, it doesn't need to work that way. It's just being a human is uncomfortable. And this is something we felt we had control over. Exactly. Invitation to not take it to, you know, take it or, you know, too um, logistically or too intellectualized. Yeah. Does that make sense? I agree yeah. with that. I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and last, last point, because I know we have to wrap is I, I really appreciate your kind of last point about how, when this comes up again, right? It's not about being recovered, recovered, mm-hmm. recovered, period, the end. It'll never happen again. I think the truth of the human condition, which is to say the truth of any disordered eating or body image stuff is not to change it, but is to change our relationship to it. Yes. Which is exactly what you're saying. That is when it comes up, what we're, what we're actually learning how to do and teaching how to do, and this is again, a plug for the retreat and everything we're going to be talking about and practicing there is how do we meet fear with love? How do we meet fear with love? That when you have the thought that says, maybe just count your calories again, you have the pause and the awareness to say, I see you, Mm -hmm. there you are again. Yeah. And hand to heart say, actually, I'm here now. And we don't need to do all that to find safety. We are meeting fear with love and ultimately teaching teaching the collective how to do that because that is the truth of how we heal. Not looking for recovered period, the end, but to say, this is a part of me and it's teaching me something every time it comes up, how I can be more present for more depth and more fulfillment, more love and more connection. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah to that. (laughs) Thank you very much, Nicole Sachs. Oh my God. I am so pumped to come to San Diego and teach your retreat. It's going to be great. And the more I'm sitting here embodying myself during this conversation, I'm psyched to participate in this retreat because it's, you know, I will bring what I bring and I know what I bring, but I don't know what everybody else is going to bring. And that's so super exciting to me because I love being a work in progress. And to be honest with you, when you just said that whole thing about meeting fear with love, I actually have gotten to the point where I can meet those thought, those thoughts, those fear-based thoughts with a little bit of excitement because I'm like, oh, oh, okay, okay. I'm doing that thing that I've always done. I have an opportunity for growth right now. And I know that might sound insane, but like I could actually welcome it like that. I do. And so as I am hearing all this stuff and like you're inviting me to share these parts of myself that I don't often talk about, not because I'm unwilling, just because it's not, this is not exactly my work. So I'm, this is, I'm taking sort of like a, side view of it. Why, when I come into your work with like a portion of my work that, that is so important to me personally, I'm excited to sit within my truth in your retreat, in the parts of it that I'm not teaching and be like, maybe I can grow a little bit. Maybe I can add a little tool to my toolkit. So I'm excited for myself. I'm excited for you because I think you're the most incredibly gifted teachers. Truly, truly. I cannot wait to see what you bring and anyone listening. Cause I know this is going to air on your platform and on mine come and hang out with us because it is going to be so transformative. And I'm just, I'm getting very excited. <laughs> Yay. Me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Through and through. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming out to San Diego for your first time ever. I know. I've never been super, super psyched. Yes. Yay. All right. Thank you, Nicole Sachs. We'll see you again soon. Yes, yes, yes. Bye. (laughs)